Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, my guest reveals the five things from any time in their life that they would like to have in a time capsule. They pick four things they love and one thing they loathe and would like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the artist John Keane, whose commissioned works include a commission by the UN for a portrait of the former General Secretary of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, a portrait of Mo Molum by the National Portrait Gallery, John Snow for Channel 4, and Greg Dyke for the BBC. John is a political painter whose subjects often concern contentious political, social and military issues. I say is a political painter, but very recently he announced that he was going to stop painting. So as contentious as ever it would seem. John Keane's work has focused on many of the most pressing political questions of our age, and he came to national prominence in 1991 when he was appointed as official British war artist during the Gulf War by the Imperial War Museum. His work has always been deeply concerned with conflict, military, political and social, in Britain and around the world, and his subjects have included Northern Ireland, Central America and the Middle East, sometimes working with organisations such as Greenpeace and Christian Aid. More recent subject matter has addressed the difficult topics relating to religiously inspired terrorism, such as Guantanamo Bay, the Moscow theatre siege and homegrown acts of violence against civilians. Not many still life paintings of flowers in his back catalogue then. So, let's find out why John Keane has, sort of, retired and what he would take from his life to preserve in a time capsule. And for once, this is a chat where I was actually in the same room as my guest. Quite a thrill. I hope you enjoy it. So, shall I begin? Yeah. Shall I begin? That'd be great. Well, uh, uh, it's tough trying to think of things, but there are certain things kind of present themselves. And I suppose what, over the years, for me, might 
things that might have um, somehow put me in the direction in which my life subsequently went. And um, one of that, I suppose, was art. Um, I'm uh, an artist. And so I was trying hard to think about what images, perhaps, that that, um, may have been particularly kind of crucial in that. And I I arrived at one, probably when I was about 14 or 15. um, It's a painting by René Magritte. Uh, English translation of the title is um, Time Transfixed from 1938. But since this obviously is uh, audio, not visual, I will describe the image. It's it's, it's, um, basically the image of a a steam locomotive emerging from a kind of Victorian fireplace. Um, I can't remember precisely the occasion which I first saw this. But it represented for me just something, oh, it's reality, but it's reality subverted somehow. And it, for me, what um, I suppose subsequently the, the process of uh, becoming interested in art and eventually becoming an artist was it represented a kind of alternative. I thought at this time I was at um, a very staid, conventional boys' public school. Mm. And this somehow thought, that, oh, that, yeah, there's a different, literally a kind of different reality. It doesn't have to be this. I was, a, you know, what a, essentially I suppose was you know, not that much different from it as it might have been in Victorian times. I mean, it wasn't... Uh, I didn't have suffer the most sort of brutal... It's um, not flashback. Uh, it wasn't quite, no. But, but it, I mean, it, essentially, I mean, it was, I suppose, a kind of brutal environment. But I have to say, thankfully, I didn't suffer... I don't think any of the worst excesses, but it was that ethos. And, and coming across an image like this, and there were other images as well, and I was thinking, you know, Dali and surrealism and so on, which I suppose first set me off in being interested in... I mean, I, I think I was already interested in making art, painting and so on, but this sort of provided a, a sort of an interest as a kind of something, you know, a way of exploring this through making work, I suppose, about that. And I sort of became a little surrealist in, in my <laughs> time. And, and this was my, I suppose, escape from, from um, the rather overwhelmingly conventional staid and towing-the-line kind of ethos that public school was. And, of course, you know, by producing images that sort of people, people were baffled by, I think, what's that all about? And, they say, and, and there were these accusations over a suit, you know, anyone who sort of stepped out of uh, line was being... Um, that was the accusation that was levelled of being sued. It's that way of belittling anyone who really doesn't conform, I Ooh. suppose. Um, and I think, yes, it was, it was probably this image by René Magritte that I remember as being kind of significant in that process. Yes, at a time when, of course, you could have chosen punk. Uh, no, this is pre-punk. Way uh, before. It's way before. I can tell you about punk later. Uh, uh, but, but no, no, I mean, this is, this is sort of late uh, 60s, early 70s subcultures, right. you know, counterculture and all that, yeah. the, which there was, you know, people were, you know, people were getting albums by Jimi Hendrix or whatever and things. And there was, you know, there was even a progressive music society at the school. So there were, you know, there were currents of contemporary culture that existed, but it was very much kind of peripheral to to the whole thing. I mean, most of it was, you know, academic and also being in the CCF, the the core, the military aspect. I went to a school that did have quite a strong military tradition, Ooh. and I didn't identify with that at all. Um, no. So it was, you know, the, this discovery, I suppose, of art as an alternative reality. 
And I suppose, you know, I have, uh, have my school to thank for that. And actually there was, you know, to, to I credit, there was a good art department. There was a good, um, uh, a good art master who was encouraging. But it was kind of fringe yeah. and mainstream. And, and it was my sort of way of rebellion, I suppose. And I suppose also there's an element of survival there, isn't there, in, in some ways you're either going to go down the mainstream, but mm. then you're in a very competitive field, mm. aren't you? If you say, OK, me and this little group here, mm. we're on the side, Yeah, that, that's a sort of yeah. a, a uh, safe haven. Yes, and I mean, I, had, you know, I did have some good friends and people with, with interests in common. Um, not so much sort of visual arty or something, but maybe sort of literary, poetic and, yeah. you know, whatever. But... Yeah, it is, yeah, survival, I think, of, of finding a few like-minded souls. And, you know, thankfully there were. Mm. And also, that thing of being mysterious. At 15, you don't feel at all mysterious. Mm. You feel as if everybody can see right into your soul. Mm. So actually suddenly finding something that you found mysterious, that you could do. Yes, uh, yeah, that, that is your, your own territory. Yeah. And it's interesting you should use the word mysterious because um, I think, you know, that, that what... There was an element of you know, mysterious, of strangeness, of a strangeness, of otherness, of a different reality. Literally, you know, it, it's you know, in the imagery, it's, it sort of defies the reality of, of everyday experience, and yet somehow carries a resonance from our subconscious, from our dreams, whatever. But nonetheless, is important to our sort of mental narrative, I think. Mm. I mean, it is the problem, but also the fascination that everybody who doesn't understand art, and I put myself in that category, <laughs> finds that you, you look at something and you, you don't really understand it, mm. but it still is fascinating. Well, I, I think, um, yeah, if it's, so long as it is fascinating, the worst thing could be is boring, obviously, but um, fascinating, if it arouses your fascination, then that encourages you to investigate, find out more. And I think also art needs to draw you in somehow, not resist interpretation or uh, admiration or whatever, but but to to draw in the viewer for reasons perhaps they don't necessarily understand themselves. The strange thing that people always say, which is so I'm obviously going to say it, they always ask artists who do something seemingly dangerous or avant-garde or mm. unusual or difficult to understand, they will say to them, can you actually draw? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, and I have this idea that, in a sense, um, all art is drawing. And when I say all art, I mean art in, in its many varied forms, from, from obviously from drawing, painting, visual art, um, but also words on a page, performance on a stage, film, whatever in that um, it's a representation of life in that what a draft person is doing is trying to physically represent in lines and so on the reality they see before them on a page. But also in other media, it's the same thing, but you're not using a line, you're not losing a pencil, you're using perhaps um, words or images or sequences of images or whatever. But the end result is, and it's the same, you know, if you look at a, bad drawing, you say, well, you know, it's rubbish, isn't it? Because it, but, but if it is good or in any form, you say yes, because it somehow affirms in you a sense of, yes, this is what it's like to be human. And you recognise that. You recognise that through emotion or, or through visually or whatever, or in whatever manner that the art 
itself is presented to you mm. and you say yeah I get that and it means something to me and I respond so in, in, in a, it's a, another kind of drawing yeah well I think human beings have an extraordinary ability to well to pick up signals from all sorts of things so uh, we can see a human form in three lines mm. Mm. And the fact that all humans can do that, yeah, yeah, which shows that actually we have quite a deep understanding of yes, of well, absolutely. Also, I, I do think you know we're kind of hardwired through you know evolution to discern forms that resemble living beings in the in the way that um, I mean, it's what one of the my themes has been over the years of, of has been uh, Rorschach tests, butterflies seeing images in yeah. blobs. And how how butterfly wings with eye spots resemble other creatures that may deter predators, therefore they're not predated and therefore they survive to reproduce. And the more accurate the the representation of reality in their mimicry, the more they survive and the better the mimicry. And and that's something I explored. It was actually after a trip I did to the Amazon with Greenpeace in 2000, 2000, I think it was, on one of their anti-logging campaigns, I just came across a butterfly, not in the rainforest, but actually in a natural history museum, an owl butterfly with the most incredible eye spots, down to almost, you know, the highlight in the pupil of the eye. Wow. Uh, And the degree of naturalism, of realism, that any artist might strive to get was there, just, you know, on the wing of a butterfly Mm. that had evolved somehow. Mm. And I was just struck by that and thinking, how does that... Where does that come from? So I started reading up about, you know, evolutionary theory and blah, 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 blah. I, I recognise, you know, there is... Or is it... Is it God? Is it... Uh, uh, yeah. Um, no. <laughs> it's evolution. That, I don't know. I'm the great clockmaker. Uh, you know, where does a clock come exa- from? Exactly. But, you know, so I... Yeah, so I was reading Richard Dawkins and all that stuff. But um, mm. uh, So, it, yeah, it kind of set off that train of thought. And it, I think beings, creatures, humans are hardwired to recognise images, I suppose, for survival. Yeah, yeah. For their own survival, in a way. Yes. And that whole evolution thing, people always forget to put into it time. Oh, yes. The the, the huge um, thing. Actually, look at that. We have uh, on the wall here, Charles Darwin and and a chimpanzee. This is a piece I did from around that time of Charles Darwin looking uncannily like a chimpanzee. (laughs) Like a chimp. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Anyway, that's, that's, uh, I never meant to get onto that subject, but there we are. <laughs> <laughs> so, having decided or discovered the Magritte painting and others like it, mm. did you start to paint in the style of people? I, 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 I became a surrealist, yes. Oh, yes. I, I mean, actually, to be honest, I was probably more into Dali at that time and sort of devoured anything I could, any image or you know, books that I could find, whatever. So, yeah, I did. And that, but that, you know, that maybe lasted a year or two. But that was my entry point. It was mm. the entry point into the art world. And then I, you know, I got interested in other things. I became, you know, I became an abstract painter for a bit after. You know, it did, I, I explored all kinds of um, ways of making art. Um, and that was, you know, even before going to art school. And then I went to art school, which in itself was sort of quite stifling, I think. It was very figuratively based, mm. which was useful, but... Uh, yeah, uh, anyway, yeah. And so what, you covered everything? I, I covered everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not quite everything, but but I, I was, you know, I was interested. I, I Just what's going on, and, and, you know, what's going on in contemporary art at that time and so on. So, yeah, I wanted to absorb it all, and you find things that interest you, and you find things that 
you don't respond to. And, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm always interested in the idea of, of when you find your own voice in those things. If you fall in love with music because you hear the Beatles, the first few songs you're going to write are undoubtedly yeah. going to be like yeah. yesterday. Well, I, uh, exactly. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, obviously early work is very derivative and and you are looking over your shoulder all the time. And actually, sometimes you find yourself, as I did, sort of... I, doing paintings, I thought, God, I've sort of seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> and it does bear an uncanny resemblance. with his half-smile. Yes, oh, that's funny yes that. exactly. And, but, you know, that is kind of unconscious. It's not deliberate. And you think, oh, God. And it slightly detracts from the... You think, oh, that's really good. Oh, I'm not the first person to, yeah, to do that. Yeah. But it's what you say about finding a voice, and that kind of came later, um, some years after leaving art school, which I sort of... Uh, struggled for quite a while and when I found I suppose what became my theme or you know my motivation which you know as you know it's it's war conflict politics and so on um it was the Falklands War actually that set me off on that um particular I was just so angry so outraged that I found myself in a country that's in a state of war over some colony that no one ever, ever heard of and our you know young men were going to be shipped off to fight and possibly to their deaths and Anyway, so that, that was a kind of catalyst. Then. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose we ought to talk about why you've decided to stop being an artist. Um, well, I don't know if I've stopped being an artist. I don't know if you, um, if you, if you can. Uh, but you're right, Mike. I, no, I have stopped making art for, well, I suppose, uh, really since the outbreak of um, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a show which was due to open basically the, the day everything shut down, so it, so it never opened. And, uh, and that, it, I suppose I've been, at the back of my mind, uh, there have been a lot of questions going on about um, my work, you know, my artistic output and process and so on. It's, it's the emotional investment in making work, which over the years, I suppose, you spend a lot of time alone in the studio producing what, you know, you think this is, you know, terrific stuff and waiting for approbation and celebration and sales, of course, you mm. know. But it's kind of, it's, a, it's the emotional investment tended to um, not really be justified by the, the end product. And, and I was just feeling that uh, each show I would do would be, like, you know, you'd be climbing another mountain, there's a lot of effort involved, and you think at the end of it, hmm, does the gratification really justify what I've put into that. And I found, as you know, in, in recent years, it hasn't. And, and I just thought, well, actually, let's just take a break. Let's just, uh, the, you know, there was a natural pause because of the pandemic and so on. And obviously it was very disappointing that the show was uh, cancelled. But it also led, gave me time to reflect on how I wanted to spend my time and... I, you know, over the years, I've been working as an artist for many, many years. I've sold a lot of work over that time. There was a lot of work also I haven't sold that remains in store. And I thought, well, do I really want to carry on contributing to this painting mountain that someone at some point will have to process, deal with, um, burn? I don't know. But, you know, that, that's been down to my kids or whatever. Uh, and I, you know, I just felt, well, OK, for the time being, that's enough. Um, so... And it was a sort of natural process. And believe, strangely enough, it's, it's also a great relief. It's, uh, it's almost a bit like a burden has been lifted. I don't feel I need 
Because, you know, it's hard to know what motivates you to get up in the morning and make work. And But over the years, there's been enough of that for me to do that. Mm. And that was just, I suppose, sort of on the wane, enough to make me decide that, well, let's just give it a rest. So was it the work in the end that you were disappointed with? No, or, or no, I think, no I, think, I think my work has got better and better mm. over the years. That's and perhaps, <laughs> perhaps this is where, you know, because I don't feel that has been uh, duly acknowledged or indeed uh, rewarded, you know, in, in whatever sense. And, and so I think, well, I've explored many different ways of working and, and different themes, and it's all been interesting and exciting and, and I've enjoyed most of it. The, you know, there are ups and downs, and I do feel over the years that my practice has got better, mm. which, you know, is always good, you know, to, to look back and think that, you know, that, that is the trajectory. However, I don't feel that's been reflected in professional recognition or indeed selling work and so on. So I just think, well, you know, uh, if I'm just making this just to go into storage, um, is it really worth it? Do and it? do you feel that the work that you have sold has been bought by people who appreciate it or do you think they bought it as investments and- I think if anyone bought my work as an investment, they'd be a very foolish investor. <laughs> uh, I think people have bought my work over the years because they it means something to them and they mm. like it. And, I, and you know, if, if they've bought it as an investment, then fine, that's up to them, but um, there won't be a great return on it. But, no, I, uh, that, and that is gratifying, that people part with their hard-earned cash because they like what I've made. Yeah. And, um, and that, is, uh, that is part of the... Vindication, I suppose, of, of the, you know, I do this, someone actually, you know, wants to spend money on it. And yeah, great. And that's, that's sort of the reassurance that you look for to mm. know that what you're doing actually means something to someone other than yourself. Yes. Because, you know, let's face it, I mean, you're talking about, you were saying that um, <laughs> talking to an artist, you, you know, might be rather different from people who just want to show off because <laughs> they're an entertainer. <laughs> You know, there is a big element of showing off in art as well. Yeah. There is a a big element, you know, if I'm honest, it's about ego too and all of that. And so, not in the same way, but it'd be wrong to deny that that isn't an element of it. And and if that's not, you know, uh, (laughs) that's my my ego isn't satisfied enough, I think I'll just, you know, let's let's give it a break for a bit. And actually, like I said, there's there's a sort of, a bit of a lifting of a burden. Yes. As well. It's and maybe in time that may bring you back round to it with a whole new approach. Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't shut the door on anything. No. Um, uh, and, you know, actually a lot of it's quite dull and boring as well. And, I, you know, the, the, actually, the, you know, the making, the graft. It's like watching paint dry. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> And yet I do, I mean, uh, here we are in your house, and as you say, you have Darwin on one wall, and then the most beautiful painting of your children looking at a starlit sky, with their backs turned to the artist, which I think is what <laughs> makes what makes it... Uh, yeah, but they're, but they're looking at the universe. But, you know, the loss of youth and mm. then growing up, and yeah. it's, all, it's all in yeah. it. Well, there's, I don't know if you remember the... Um, Illustration for Start Right Shoes. Do you remember the illustration? Yes. Start Right Shoes, the little boy and little girl walking up the avenue of life with... Yeah. Do you remember that? Mm. There's a kind of, there's a, that's a kind yeah. of quote as well. And I do remember the painting that was there before, which you did 
for your wife. Oh, yeah, I did a, a portrait of them. They're looking at me. And again, that, that, yeah. I can see the development yeah. of that. Yeah. So from, uh, yeah. And these are your private, personal. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, there is a development there. Mm. In that one, mm. your son was forward and yeah. young and enthusiastic. Your daughter was drifting back a bit. Yeah. You see yeah. that reflected it, in the fact. Very observant of you, Mike. Yeah, that's growing up. It's called growing, growing up. Growing up. Growing up, is that what it's called? No, it's not called growing up. <laughs> <laughs> that's what growing that's, up that's is. That's what growing yes, up I is. I understand, yes. Yeah, I've caught growing. up slowly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Well, that's, yeah. So I think that what you're saying in your art, to me, has always been very, very powerful and immediately strikes me. So I think it's a, well, you'll have to get some of those things out of storage and stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure I will at some point. Yeah. Great. The other thing was during the Falklands was that, um, they appointed a war artist, a war artist who then it was, it was a, an artist called Linda Kitson. And I thought, a war artist? Ooh. Blimey, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, funnily enough, you know, a few years later I did. Yeah. But um, anyway, that notion had never entered my head before. Although obviously I had seen the work of, you know, Paul Nash and Spencer and, and Sargent and so on, whatever, before. But uh, that, that an appointed official war artist was a notion I hadn't really come across. Yes. I would think that one of the great problems at that stage in your life would be trying to work out how on earth you would make a living doing something. There was a lot of that, yeah. I'd made a living. um, I mean, after after leaving art school and being a bit directionless, um, actually, this, this sort of ties into possibly my next... Entry in the. It's as if we worked. Can out. we just segue? Well, of course we can. Seamlessly into it's, that. It's going to sound as if I'm skillful. Uh, because you seem to be drawing this out of me. Is uh, my diary? I kept a diary from the age of about, so just about fifteen, and it lasted all the way up until I think I was just thirty. So that's a good few years. That was sort of yeah. fifteen or sixteen years, and these are the most, as we all remember, the the most formative, poignant. <clears throat> Awful, wonderful years of our life, and and I've I've recently been rereading it. It's sort of cringing, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's a fascinating document, and it actually is a time capsule in itself. Because reading it through, and it, and it's some of it's quite detailed, um, and it kind of it's a shortcut between my brain now and how I felt then, and it's kind of it's quite a strange and. Uh, sometimes it sort of evokes all kinds of emotions, actually. Some of them, as I say, just make me want to squirm. Ooh. Others, I think, oh, my God, you poor boy. No. <laughs> Did yeah. you? Oh, no, don't, yeah. But it, it somehow, it's very vivid. It's very... It, uh, so that, um, what we were talking about, about the evolution of my artistic practice, um, there were some years that I did, you know, couldn't find my own voice. And, and they covered this period of, you know, the Falklands War and so on. And, and, and that, it's a way of somehow forming the narrative of my own history, which mm. is quite interesting. I don't know how, if you think back about your own past and you remember certain episodes and it's a bit of a jumble and some things stand out, some things you've probably forgotten. People always say that I have a very good memory oh for these things. But, I'm, I'm, but uh, I, maybe it's why I've never written a diary. Maybe. I do remember yeah. things in, in oh, right. great detail. Oh, well, that's good. Also handy for, for your profession, isn't it? When it yes. I suppose so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, in my own case, my memory is a bit of a jumble. But it, but it sort of puts it in order and mm. is quite, quite sort of revelatory. 
And at this point in my life, um, you know, which is, I'm not a young man anymore, it's interesting to reflect back on that now. Yeah. And are you able to put yourself back in that position? Do you yes, understand sure. this young man? Uh, yes. I mean, it changes over the years, because obviously as I, when I started, I was, a, I was an adolescent, very immature. And I could, you know, see myself getting a bit older and wiser and learning and... So I, I, I sort of relate more to the more recent end of the, uh, mm. the diary, where I feel that's someone a bit who resembles a bit more what I am now than when I was sort of 15 yeah. or 16. And that's just the process of hopefully getting older and acquiring some kind of wisdom for what it's yeah. <laughs> whatever, you know. But, so um, what, what is it that made you... Well, what stopped you writing a diary? I was happy. Ah, yeah, it's as simple as that. I was happy. I mean, and uh, so I was beginning to get some recognition in my work. I was in a relationship, and so much of the diary is about awful, tortured relationships with women, um, or lack of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in the end, that kind of felt things were beginning to fall into place. But that, that you know, was really sort of in my... Not until my late 20s, I guess. Ooh. And I've actually took a picture of the last page, and it is... Page 2,499 or something. I mean, it is literally... I mean, it's about almost 2,000... I mean, it's on, it was on loose-leaf files wow. that I had when I was at school, yeah. wrote in files. And it... Uh, yeah, I said, I, things seem to be going well, I think, was, was <laughs> one of the last... Uh, it sounds a bit like saying, oh, maybe sometime. But, no, I think that, you know, it's actually... If to reduce it to that is that's that's as simple as that. Yes, and then I suppose that is then reflected. that wasn't the end of unhappiness as well. You know, no. you know there were no, but, sure. it, but it, it felt like things go anyway. Yeah, go on. No, I mean I, I think that sort of becoming settled or certain of, more certain of yourself and yes. your position. Yes, that then gets reflected in your work. I'm sure. Yeah, I, it's a sort of growing confidence and a sense of my own voice. I suppose. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that all contributed to that. Yeah, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I've always what I've always admired about your work is that it seems that you have something very clear to say and then you're brave enough to then muddy it, as it were. <laughs> mm, mm. Am I right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, well, things are never clear-cut. There's no. always ambiguity. I mean, things are strange, you know, back in... Uh, Rennie Magritte, why is this steam locomotive emerging from the fireplace? Mm. Um, you know, what is the logic to that? But so, yes, and that, and that excites your interest. And human beings are fallible, frail and uh, contradictory. And all these things are fraught with difficulties and contradictions. And, I, and, that, and actually, it's that, you know, those sort of things I quite like Ooh. exploring sometimes. Yeah. Yes, and the acceptance of people seeing your work and putting their own spin on it, interpreting it their own way. Yeah. Well, I think inevitably that, that's the case. I think with art, and again, art of any, in any medium, you fill in the blanks and, and that's, you do a bit of work and that's where the reward lies. And uh, the artist provides the stimulus for that and mm. you maybe supply your own answers. Because you don't want to browbeat people with, with ideology or whatever. That's, that just drives people away. But just maybe invite thought or reflection or, or um, you know, or just say, well, look, this is my take. Uh, yeah. Anything. Um, and it might not necessarily produce the thoughts that you intended, I think. Probably. I remember an Probably. exhibition of yours just after you'd come back from Palestine. Mm. And uh, there were some extraordinarily beautiful paintings of 
people standing by the wall and overhearing two people talking about it and one person saying, look at that, all that to keep that boy out. <laughs> seriously? Yes. And, and, and that was intended seriously, wasn't it? Wasn't it was no, absolutely intended seriously. Um, well, you know, actually, uh, yes. <laughs> well, yes. But that, that's a very interesting way of describing it and there's a, there's a lot of truth in that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose you're never going to publish these diaries. Actually, I don't think anyone would want to. I'm not sure. They would have to be heavily edited, I think, by me. First. I think, yeah. um, uh, a few years ago, Mark Lawson did a book, a monograph about me, and he wanted to see the diaries. Like, I resolutely refused. Very <laughs> <laughs> wise. Um, but honestly, there's, it's too much uh, for anyone. Someone would have to be very, very dedicated. Yes. To, or you'd to have to be very, very dead. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But actually, there are other things, you know, things I'm actually, I actually like. The, the, some of it makes me laugh. I mean, you know, I could be quite witty occasionally. And also there are occasionally references or messages to me now, you know, me in the future. Uh, and I just think, oh, that's me as, you know, when I was 20-something talking to me now in my 60s. And wow. it, it's kind of... it. it it's kind of weird, but rather nice in a way. Um, it's just sort of imagining myself in the future, looking back at, at yeah. this. Um, I mean, if you're writing it, you think, so, well, I'm going to hold on to these. Yeah. So one day I'll be looking at this again when I'm old. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, to be honest, when I was an adolescent, a teenager, I didn't expect to be old, <laughs> which is, I suppose, part of my makeup psyche then was that um, I fully didn't expect to live past the age of 30. Why? Because I couldn't envisage it. I, and uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I was a bit nihilistic and negative about everything. And, and um, But anyway, you know, <laughs> here I am. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, there was, I suppose there was a kind of despair at, at certain times that, that when, you know, because I, I was unhappy quite a lot frequently. And, um, and I thought, well, you know, is, what's the point, in a way? Mm. But, you know, you carry on with the grind and you carry on banging your head against the brick wall and eventually the cracks begin to appear in the brick wall and not your head. Yeah. So, <laughs> I suppose so many people go through the same, you know, I'm, I'm, there's nothing special about my experience. I'm sure it's the same with lots of people who also have much worse experience. I mean, I, you know, I had the, the benefit of a very supportive family. They hadn't a clue what I was doing, really. You know, they didn't know that my father was a stockbroker. They had no idea about the art world. But, they, you know, they never didn't support me. Yeah, so... I mean, you say nihilistic. I, I was so nihilistic, I didn't even imagine that I would ever grow old. So it never bothered me. Yeah, so you, you just carried on... I'm bound to stay as wonderful as a government. <laughs> well, you are, forever. Mark. You are. Of course you I am. Of course I am, John. <laughs> forever youthful. <laughs> I'm going to take your diaries from 15 to 30 and we'll put them safely in your time capsule. With, I think we'll put in the Brenny Magritte. Yep, time transfixed. Yes, let's nick that from a gallery somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's in Chicago, I think. Uh, right, OK, there, yeah. I'm sure, you know, nobody will listen to this, nobody will know we've, we've done it. No. But that's <laughs> that's where it is. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. So if everything goes pear-shaped, you've always got a Magritte in the back yeah. pocket. Yeah, yeah. Lovely, OK. Um, so so, what's you, number so three? you want another one now? Yeah, moving on. Thanks for listening to this Midway Point in the podcast, where, as I'm sure you know, there is traditionally an ad break. Far be it from us to break the tradition. See you in a moment. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to my time capsule of the artist, retired, possibly, John Keane. Let's find out what else he'd like to put in his time capsule and the one thing he'd like to banish to a hole in the ground and never think of again. Yeah, um, Sadler's Wells. Right. I wish someone had told me about modern dance earlier in my life. I'd, I'd, um, I'd been to... One or two things, maybe, at Sadler's Wells when I was younger, but probably in the mid-90s, and I went to... Someone had some tickets for a performance of uh, Pina Bausch, and I went to see that, and this was just... I don't know, I was utterly transfixed, absorbed, and um, through that I got more interested in contemporary dance. I mean, just because... There's something about live performance, and obviously you will understand this, although you're not a dancer. Maybe. Maybe. No. <laughs> um, but uh, there's something about the power of live performance that, that is kind of unique. You can't, it can't be reproduced in any other way. Yeah. And, and if you're there experiencing it. And dance, which entails movement, and for me, music, which is fundamentally so important throughout my life, is just something that, when it works, it's extraordinary. Oh. And Sadler's Wells, I've been to... I don't go, you know... Yeah every week or anything, maybe go two or three times a year, but occasionally they come up with dance groups and things that I just think this is just extraordinary. That mm. Quite a few, there's um, Hofer Schechter or, I mean, I've mentioned Pina Bausch and uh, Crystal Pite, the uh, most extraordinary and gut-wrenching performance there a few mm. years ago. And it's, yeah, it's just extraordinary. I just wish someone had told me about that when I was younger. Uh, I also had the benefit of the dance critic of The Observer, Luke Jennings, who for a while made me his plus one for when he was going to uh, <laughs> going to um, reviewing dance as well. And it's that thing about theatre, performance, music, movement. It has its own logic. It doesn't conform to anything. It doesn't have to have a narrative. It doesn't have to be like the conventional stage plays or whatever. Uh, but again, it's, it may have an element of... The inexplicable, strange things. Uh, and when it works, it it's, um, has a potency that I haven't really found anywhere else. Right. So, yeah, so... Who did tell you about it? Well, I suppose... I mean, I knew about it. I'd been to one or two things. I mean, I knew Sadler's Wells was there, but it was maybe just going to my first live Pina Bausch performance right. uh, in the 90s. And I think I'd heard of her, and I'd sort of seen the odd video or whatever, and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. 
Yeah, so so I, d- I don't know how you what your feelings are about dance, ballet. Dance, I find absolutely fascinating, yeah. and yet I'm not dedicated to it. Mm. I mean, unfortunately, I'm one of those people in life who says, yeah, that's fantastic, and mm. then I just carry on <laughs> with my normal life. <laughs> yeah. Clearly, I have things in my life, I think, that take precedent. Yeah. 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 For me, that's always been bath time for children. Yeah. Well, I know. I know. I know. Well, you know, I know with you and kids, uh, (laughs) um, there's no contest, is it? No. If anybody asks me what I was going to put into a time capsule, Ah. that's definite. Right. I'm slowly leaking out the things. That's a definite. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's been the joy of my life. Yeah. Well, your children are now grown up. Yeah, 24 and 19. Yes, so uh, possibly so. heading towards being a granddad. Yeah, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yes. Uh, but, I, you know, I suppose that with uh, grandchildren... I mean, it, I, I, yes, I like kids, but I, I, I suppose if I were to be blessed with grandchildren, it would be that thing of, yes, OK, you can have them back now. It's that, yeah. you know, we've enjoyed him long enough. Yes, yeah. and in life, you're much more yeah. of an observer and a commentator, yes, I think, yes. than you are a, a participant. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. Oh, and I don't mean that in a rude way. No, 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 that's, very, that's a very um, shrewd observation. I mean, it's certainly also, you know, in, politically as well, I'm more of a commentator. I'm not an activist. I don't want to get involved. I, don't, I feel very uncomfortable doing that, but mm. I, I do want to um, observe, yeah. Yes. So I'm trying to think of the sort of contemporary dance that I've seen, and actually I find I'm not really bothered about the standard of it. you know what I mean? Mm. When you see extraordinarily well-trained ballet dancers mm. doing modern dance, it's extraordinary yeah, it, what it, they can it, it, do with their bodies. Yeah. But I find it just as interesting and, in fact, as rewarding to watch a bunch of... Well, I'm the honorary president of a children's theatre group, mm. and whenever they do dance in that, it moves me more than the mm. singing or the acting. Yeah, well, I, I, I agree. I mean, that's because it, it is something. And actually... This might just segue neatly into <laughs> my next choice. Oh, okay. Um, but, well, before I do that, I'll, it, no, it's just people moving in unison. Yeah. I think people moving together to uh, a rhythm or, a, or music, uh, you know, line dancing or something like that. It's just something that, oh, yeah, it kind of hits something in your brain that, that you think there's, there's something rather special about that. And, mm. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be brilliantly disciplined. In fact, probably what is, you know, if it is brilliantly disciplined, you think of, you know, goose-stepping soldiers or something, nothing could be more, you know, soulless than that, mm. frankly, and they're all moving in unison. However, when you do see people voluntarily getting together, it's like, you know, those sort of flash mob things, you know, that, that people oh, yeah. trend with those. I thought, you know, fantastic. And actually that does actually... I'm, I'm doing a job for you now. That's all right. Move me into my next um, item for the time capsule, which is uh, the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics. Right. Um, Tell me about it, because I'm afraid I was so drunk that I missed most of it. Oh, God, Mike. I know. Seriously. I was so excited. There was one day um, in the summer when, on the Today programme, they played the Underworld theme of, by Underworld, of, of the, which sort of ran throughout the opening ceremony or, or you know, recurred from time to time. The waterworks just... I mean, it just all came back. And it, it's... Um, I mean, in fact, it's almost doing that now. Yeah. I'm thinking about it. But the... No, I just... I, was, I found the whole thing so moving. And it was this participation of people. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know how much of it you do remember, but... 
I exaggerate. I do remember. Yeah, I mean, you know, like obviously the NHS sequence and things Ooh. like that, and and these the tree these, of life. I thought was just yeah, yeah, and there, you know, there was Kenneth striding out as Brunel, and it just was absolutely brilliant. There is a connection there because you mm. say that that overly regimented movement of people together mm. can seem sort of too clinical. Yeah. What was marvellous about that opening ceremony was that it was clearly astonishingly well organised. Yes. But yes. at the same time, had a freedom to it. Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, it's probably because of the involvement of so many groups of different diverse groups of people. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I was a total sceptic about the Olympics beforehand. You know, I'm not that interested in sport, Um I, I sort of thought, oh, God, the Olympics in London, it's just going to be a nuisance, you know, it's going to <laughs> slow the traffic down or something. And then I watched it, we were, it was in Suffolk, and we was with the family, and we just watched it on a small TV screen, and I was just transfixed. I was a convert from that moment on. And then the next morning, I just watched it all through again. We, 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 and I, and I, I, honestly, it was just... Uh, Amazed, and and I take my hat off to Danny Boyle and 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 Frank Cultural Boyce and and everyone you know who's involved in it, and it was mm. just a triumph, a total triumph, and particularly now in view of everything that has transpired since politically in this country, it marks the end of an era. It yes, really did. and it was you know it's actually seen as a kind of almost a in certain ends of the political spectrum as a kind of subversive, you know, and and lefty and and but it, for me it kind of did represent so much of what I actually I like about this country. And it was all beautifully, beautifully assembled and put together. Yes. Uh, it and, does feel like as if it was the last time that, that as a nation we were unified. Exactly, mm. yeah. And since then it's just been division and fragmentation. Mm. And, uh, yeah, well we, well, we all know where we are now. So it, it's, there's a kind of a nostalgia, I suppose, looking back at it. Mm. But then, yeah, I did it com- completely in the space of a couple of hours converted me to the Olympics as a, as a thing. I thought, great, fantastic. Did you go? Wonderful. I didn't, but um, my son did. He went to very... I mean, he was only 10 at the time. He, he went to quite a lot. He's got invited to a lot of things. He'd come mm. back and tell us about them and so on. But, but I, you know, I, I followed it on mm. TV and so on. I kept an interest in it. But I thought it was stunning. And, yeah. You know, as a work of art, yeah, I think it was uh, extraordinary. Mm. And then I, a, f- a few days after that, I was at a birthday party and Frank Cottrell Boyce was there and I was sort of in awe of him. I thought, my God, you're involved in this. Um, uh, yeah, anyway. So... Um, do you know Will Bowen? I do, not very well. I've met, we've met, yeah. But he designed the Tree of Life. Did he? Do? I didn't even know that. Yes. Really? No. Yeah. yeah, no, I didn't know that. Well, I knew, yes, I knew he's a very well-esteemed uh, designer, theatre mm. designer and all that, but I didn't know that he did that. Oh, well, uh, th- there you go. Have to take my head off to him too. But, it, you know, uh, like I said, I just, when I heard that theme again and the children's voices sing, I just blubbed and blubbed. <laughs> it's pathetic. No, I think <laughs> it's great. great. Um, we should hold on to these things, yeah, life, yeah. I think, yeah. these great moments. And that undoubtedly, out of what may well have been a hopeless moment, I mean, you would have imagined, looking at his history, that anything started by Boris mm. would have fallen apart mm. at some point. Yeah. But yes. actually, through the efforts and the, the work of thousands and thousands of people, 
you get this extraordinary thing. Mm. I mean, I did go to the Olympics. Did and yeah. The people working on it, the, yeah. the friendliness of the whole thing, yeah. The, yeah. the efficiency of it all was mm. astonishing. Mm. And there's just the spirit of cooperation. It was absolutely common enterprise. As it is. I mean, I was yeah. in tears most of the time, yeah. just yeah. watching people run around a track. Yeah. And I took my newborn first grandchild yeah. with me, and I have a photograph of him draped in a Union Jack, uh-huh. you know, with the stadium behind uh-huh. him, and I should treasure it Fantastic. forever. Fantastic, yeah. Yes, right. that's a lovely thing to choose. Yeah, well, has anyone chosen that before? No. Oh, I'm surprised. Well, I suppose it's that personal thing. Mm. It feels very personal. There's also, I mean, it is personal because it's you know, the time of the family as well. I'm watching it as a family oh, with mm. the kids. That's part of the, the mix. Lovely. Okay, so we've got one final thing to put in, which is uh, something you want to reject from your life. Um, public school. Ah, where we started. Which is where, yeah, we've done the full circle. Um, and with that, I'd say the public school system, which I think is a pernicious continuation of, of a small group of individuals, families, institutions and so on that continue to dictate life in this country. And it's just, you know, it's wrong. It's wrong. I, you know, I, of course, was, have been the beneficiary of that, but also... I feel I also haven't been. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I had a public school education. I went to quite a posh school and I did quite well there. But in the end, it didn't really have much to offer me in the career I subsequently pursued since I didn't go to Oxbridge and I didn't join the Scots Guards mm. um, or work in the city. Uh, Which would have been the intention of sending you there. I mean, I, you know, I don't in any way blame my parents. I mean, for them... No, they would have seen that as a safe future. Absolutely. And that's what you did. From people of their background, their class, that, that is what you did. But, you know, they were. it was a, a brutal kind of environment for a... I mean, I went to, you know, a centre to school aged eight initially, uh, and that, which I think is just cruel, actually. Mm. But, you know, I survived and I like to think I'm a sort of reasonably well-balanced individual. I, you know, unpleasant things happen, but nothing like as unpleasant as some of the things you hear described. So I don't, you know, it wasn't a casualty. But now, you know, we live in an eatonocracy. And I think that is, in the 21st century, that is just wrong. That is, is bizarre, isn't it? It is bizarre. And, and, and it, it, it kind of, it makes me ashamed, actually, of who this country is and, and is... Um, in fact, in a way, it's almost sort of reinforced now. That's what because he felt the country was becoming a bit more of a. Um, it started doing the hoovering upstairs. It started doing the hoovering upstairs. That's, That's typical, isn't it? Uh, do you want me to go and have a word upstairs? Or is that going to? I think it's come to an end. Okay. All right. I agree with you. I have to say, I'm in complete agreement that I find it really bizarre that we constantly accept that situation. That it's we, precisely. Yeah. I can't understand a lot of working-class people just saying, well, that's all right then. Mm. Almost as if you know, it ought to be that way. Yes, this sort of hat-doffing, forelock-tugging tradition that, that persists, actually, and they think, well, that's OK. But I don't know, I don't know. It's, uh, yes, you're right, people do seem to accept it, or just, you know, that is... What's normal? I mean, you know, I could throw in the monarchy as well, but I I think that's part of it. Um, The thing I don't understand is if you throw a few crumbs to people from not well-off backgrounds and mm, uh, allow mm. them to come to your school, Mm. and as a result, you get charitable status. 
Yeah, oh, I know. Well, that, yes. I mean, that, that, is, that is absurd, yes. If that were removed, that would cause a significant change, I think. But no-one really has the um, temerity to... No, but it ought to be, shouldn't it? They ought yeah. to be honest about what they're doing. If you say, OK, look, if you're just going to set up very special schools with wonderful facilities mm. and you're rich enough to pay for it mm. and you're going to live outside of the rest of society, mm. we'll all have to put up with what we can get on the state, Yeah. Uh, then be honest about it. Precisely, uh, precisely. And, and uh, so, it, I mean, it, it doesn't bear scrutiny at all. Uh, so, yeah, but that's that's the way it is. And uh, until that uh, status is removed, I'm sure they will continue to flourish. And, you know, because uh, there are wealth has become more and more concentrated and polarised now, there's, there's always the market for it. And why would you give up that position of power as well? Why indeed? Why indeed? Why, you know, who would uh, you know, willingly renounce it? Yes. When does that ever happen? That, uh, mm. people, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come and join my society. <laughs> John, thank you so much. Um, I'll let them get on with the hoovering upstairs. OK. And say thank you for being on my time capsule. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's been really fascinating. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, Mike, and thank you for inviting me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, John Keane. I look forward to being in the room with more people soon. But it does work pretty well online, as you can find out if you subscribe to this podcast, as we will let you know when any new episode is released and have it ready for you to download or stream. Aren't we nice? Right before you leave us, or maybe skip to another episode, please take the time to rate the show. It really helps with the podcast profile. Whatever that means. You may even get the chance to review it, so be kind. You can see what's going on with me and my time capsule if you follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Feel free to chat away. We loved getting messages. Well, most of them. You can listen to the theme tune by Pass the Peas music on Spotify anytime. This has been a cast-off production. Produced, or even produced if you prefer actual English, by John Fenton Stevens. Right, time to relax. I can't spend my entire life doing podcasts, you know. A man's going to have some me time. My latest way to relax is golf, which I've recently taken up. <laughs> they say it's hard. For the first time I played it, I hit two birdies and an eagle and a cow and three horses. I was bloody useless, so I'll leave you with this warning. Four! Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.